Well, it is an honor to be here and a uh, privilege to bring God's word to you. And uh, before I begin, I need to pray again, so please pray with me. Father, we thank you so much for your presence with us. We thank you for like-minded churches, part of that, that one body. And I thank you for uh, Watasquin Mission Church and their high view of your word and uh, their devotion to you uh, by the Holy Spirit in Jesus Christ. I pray that as we open your word together that uh, we will indeed see what is really there and that you would change us as we, as we engage with, with you through your, your holy word. I pray that uh, you would uh, give me clarity and wisdom. Thank you for the prayers already of, uh, of Pastor Dan and, and the people here. And I pray that uh, you would be honored with what you hear and with how we apply what you give to us this day. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. What kind comes to mind when you hear the word comfort? Probably 2 Corinthians chapter 1, because Pastor Dan just read it. But beyond that, just generally speaking, comfort. What do you think about? Perhaps a little warmer weather after a long cold spell is uh, something that comes to mind. Maybe a cozy chair in front of a fire with an afghan over your knees and a book in hand and a cup of tea at your side. That's comfort. Those things are comfort, but that's not what I'm talking about this morning. If we get a little bit more abstract, perhaps some of you, if you hear the word comfort, might think of having all of your debts paid off and some money set aside for the future, having some financial security might give you comfort. That is a form of comfort. But I bet most of us that have lived a few years think of consolation during grief, during times of crisis, during times of loss, having that, that, that conscious knowledge of, of the presence and the comfort of God and, and the, the presence and the, the encouragement, the help, the love of family and friends that are close by. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 11 form a kind of an introduction to the book of 2 Corinthians, but they really set a tone. And it's, it's a tone that is, is, is warm, it's pastoral, it's dependent upon God. Now, you know something of Corinth because uh, I just heard, but I heard ahead of time as well uh, from Pastor Dan that you've been hearing messages on the book of 1 Corinthians. So you know that there's trouble behind. Uh, there were a lot of difficulties. I won't review all of those this morning, but this is a church that had a temptation to be worldly-minded and a little selfish and unloving with one another. But it seems in this letter that a bit of a corner has been turned. There's a there's a sorrow, there's a sense of repentance, there's a sense of, of love, a sense of regret. But there are also troubles ahead. And one of the main reasons that the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Second Corinthians was that there were people that were, well, Paul called them somewhat sarcastically, super apostles. People that were, were selfish, that were concerned with what man thinks, 
and were not humble, suffering servants of the Lord. So with that in mind, we're going to look at what Paul says about his own suffering and about the suffering of the people around him and how our God is the God of all comfort. Right at the very beginning, I don't want to skip over these verses. They're the same in all of Paul's letters, but they're so important. Paul says, To the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, and we, we need to remember that there's a, there's a partnership behind Paul's ministry and partnership behind Paul's letters. But we need to see the God-centered nature of the beginning of this book and the whole book if we took the time to read all the way through. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is this gift of, ultimately, righteousness from God. It is this grace by which we stand before God. We, we are, by nature, sinners. We are children of wrath. And unless God gives us something we can't get for ourselves, and that is forgiveness and righteousness, there's no hope. So grace is righteousness from God. Peace is reconciliation with God. Forgiveness because of Christ's death on the cross, leading to a redeemed life forever as adopted children of God. Nothing is more important than this grace and peace. And that's why Paul always starts his letters this way. Back to comfort. In verses 3 to 7, we come across the word comfort or comforted ten times. In just those few verses. Ten times. It must be important. Comfort in this context does not depend upon circumstances. It's not describing that cup of tea in a comfy chair by the fire. This is something deeper and more significant. Our sense of discomfort is certainly affected by circumstances. And circumstances often call for the need for comfort. But this comfort gets deep. This comfort carries the idea simply of someone coming alongside to bring help. In this passage, it is first God that comes alongside of us to bring help. And then from that, we, with the comfort God has given us, come alongside others to bring that help. This help results in rescue. It results in safety and security, physically, emotionally, spiritually, any combination of these. When we know fear... We need comfort. When we know loneliness, we need comfort. When we feel pain, we need comfort. When we feel shame, we need comfort. When we know guilt, we need comfort. When we face discouragement, we need comfort. This, this word is, is big enough to fit all of those and much more. We all need a Savior. We don't just need comfort when physical and emotional needs make us uncomfortable. We need salvation from true peril. More on that in a moment. 
God, the God of all comfort, can rescue us from all these needs. We have real guilt. As I mentioned, we are under the wrath of God by nature in ourselves. We in our sin deserve hell. God alone can save us and bring us the ultimate comfort. When we repent of our sin and put our faith in Christ as Savior, confessing Him as Lord, we will know the God of all comfort for our greatest need for help and salvation. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. The Apostle Paul, who writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 of this intense suffering, this, this, this despair of life itself even, that God delivered them from, also writes, For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So from the very beginning of this message, I want us to see in the the context of 2 Corinthians here, how low we are, how desperate our need is. Because you might have heard the word comfort, and you might be doing pretty well right now and you think this message isn't really for me I'm, I'm doing okay I don't don't need comfort right now but if you're conscious of of who you are without Christ you'll know that you need this comfort on the other hand you might think my circumstances my needs are so great that this spiritual talk of comfort's not going to help There's nothing that God's word could give me this morning. I am in despair. Well, look up. (laughs) Because the, the rescue that God promises and the ultimate comfort that he promises makes the most severe trial and despair and and difficulty a light and momentary affliction in comparison to, as Paul says in Romans 8, to the glory that will be revealed to us. So keep this range in mind as we we carry on and look more closely at these verses. Just another couple of words on comfort to give us a little bit of a range here as to how the Bible uses this word comfort. The same word in the original that's translated comfort is, is sometimes translated help or consolation. Do you remember Simeon? In Luke chapter 2, who was waiting, what was he waiting for? He was waiting for the Messiah, but he was waiting for, as Luke put it, the consolation of Israel. Same word as the word for comfort here in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. God is the ultimate source of comfort, and for fallen humanity, the ultimate comfort is Jesus Christ. So he must stay at the center as we carry on. An interesting verse that uses this same word of comfort is right after the conversion of the Apostle Paul. And remember, the Apostle Paul was an enemy of the church, breathing out murderous threats, seeking to arrest and drag away these these despicable Christians. And God confronted him on the road to Damascus and gloriously saved him and set him out as an apostle of Jesus Christ. 
Well, right after that conversion account, Saul of Tarsus, now the Apostle Paul, we read this summary statement, and it's in Acts 9.31, and I'll just read it for you. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So, so think of this range a little bit as we carry on and look at this concept of comfort. So then, comfort means that our holy, loving, sovereign God is now, for those of us in Christ, is now with us and for us. He's for our good, for his glory, always. I have three points this morning. Yeah, Baptist preacher, three-point sermon. As we work through 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, we're going to look at three different aspects of this comfort that, that the Apostle Paul describes. And I'm not going to work sequentially through necessarily, but more on the themes with these points. First of all, we're going to look at the God of all comfort and the scope of salvation. I've touched on some of that already. Secondly, we're going to look at the context of comfort and talk a little bit about the, the reality of suffering. For we would not require comfort if suffering were not a universal experience. And lastly, the fellowship of comfort. Community and prayer for the glory of God. So first of all, the God of all comfort, the scope of salvation. When we think about what God does for us, we must begin with God. Now, that might sound very obvious, but it's not necessarily. Because when we are thinking about needing comfort, who's the first person we think of? Me. I think of me. But here Paul turns the spotlight onto who God is and what God does before he looks at the problems, before he looks at the ongoing difficulties in this church at Corinth, some of the threats they're facing, some of the internal turmoil, some of the challenges in the relationship they have with him. Before any of that, he turns the spotlight onto our great God. Begin with God, the God of all comforts. Both Paul and the Corinthians had needs and problems, and Paul addresses these in this book, but he begins with God. Reminded of what we read in Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, when you hear that phrase, don't think beginning as a race, as a start line, and then you move beyond the fear of God and run along the road. Rather, think of building a building. The fear of the Lord is the foundation of knowledge. It's, it's, it's there. It's, it's, it's built as, a, as the foundation of our, our knowledge of God. And, and the rest of the structure of, of our lives, of our experience with God, is built upon that. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. So, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Paul begins with the word blessed or blessed. This is worship, it's recognition, it's honor, it's submission. Think of Job. Blessed be the Lord. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name 
of the Lord. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is God, how has he revealed himself? God is the creator of all. He is holy, as we heard earlier. But he is our Father. And he's the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom he has revealed himself ultimately. Now this word comfort that we have before us in the Greek, I don't normally throw out Greek. It's usually pretentious and a bit of a waste of time. But I think many of you would have heard the word paraclete. That's a word that's used of Jesus in 1 John chapter 2. It's translated there often, advocate, one who stands up for us and stands beside us in, in court like a, like a lawyer, but a perfect, a good lawyer. And he speaks to the Father in our defense, showing his scars. So in that he's helping us, he is our comforter as well. The best known use of that word paraclete, if you've heard sermons on John 14, 15, 16, that word is used there in all three of those chapters as Jesus promises and teaches about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who is one who comes alongside us and even within us to help us to be our advocate as he points us to the one who stands up to defend us because he has died for us and risen again from the dead for our justification. And here it's God the Father who is the comforter. He is the God of all comfort, and it's the same root word. So in order to understand the comfort of God, we need to understand that God is one, but he is triune. And, and, and he reveals himself to us ultimately in Jesus Christ, but it is the Father who plans, who ordains. It is the Son who accomplishes. It is the Holy Spirit who applies the, the plan of the Father through the finished work of Christ to us. So if you want to experience comfort, if you're going through trials, or if you're preparing for trials, which we all should be, we need to have good theology. We need to have the foundation of the fear of the Lord. But the Lord, as he has revealed himself, is our triune God. This is the first step in understanding salvation. It is understanding who God is. Good theology leading to sincere worship leads to comfort from God. The Apostle Paul calls God the Father of mercies. What is the scope of salvation? What are we saved from ultimately? Ultimately, our salvation is not from, in terms of priority, sin, self, devil, Ultimately, our salvation is from God, the wrath of God, because God is holy, and we're not. It is from the wrath of God that we are saved through the death of Christ on the cross, because in my place condemned he stood. He who knew no sin became sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians again, 5.21, in this case, if you're taking notes. He is the Father of mercies. He does not treat us as we deserve. That's what mercy means. We are saved by Jesus Christ from the penalty of our sins. 
Justification, as I've alluded to earlier, has these two aspects of forgiveness and the gift of righteousness in Jesus Christ. And that makes this full sphere of our, our justification, forgiveness and righteousness from God. In God, we have a comprehensive salvation. The comfort that we are looking for is a full comfort. In the, the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ applied by the Holy Spirit, we anticipate full healing, full restoration, being made like the Lord Jesus Christ. All things are ours, we're told, but not yet. Not yet. We're still living in the shadowlands. We're still waiting until that day. We, our salvation is fully accomplished, but we are waiting for the full possession of our new bodies, of a new heaven and a new earth, until that final day when we see Christ, Christ face to face and are made like him, for we shall see him as he is. We are already adopted as God's children by grace through faith. But we do not yet have the redemption of our bodies and that new creation reality. We, in this veil of tears, there is suffering, and we await in hope and in faith for what our eyes do not yet see. So while we wait, the Bible tells us we are strangers and aliens, right side down by God's grace in an upside down world. And we often feel that we don't fit and we need comfort. We must remember the fact that God is the God of all comfort. All things are ours in Jesus Christ. We are more than conquerors, and we need to claim the promises in full assurance of hope. This is the scope of salvation. Comfort will come no matter what our suffering as we grow in the knowledge of the gospel and all of its benefits to us in Christ Jesus. Look again with, with me at the severity of Paul's situation. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. If you're like me, we know that like even the Apostle Paul admitted, we have a tendency to rely on ourselves and not on God. We still fight our sin, pride, self-righteousness, greed, temptations to lust, and many other things. Why did Paul say they suffered so intensely? So that they could learn to rely on God, not themselves. Suffering simplifies things. I've told people in pastoral counseling that confess to me that they're, they're so overburdened, they feel like they can't even pray, they can't read. They're just, they're just at a loss. And I say sometimes we just simply have to survive. And it's in those times that we learn to trust in God and not on ourselves. Suffering sharpens the focus of our need for a Savior. Who is this Savior? 
God who raises the dead. If he can do that, what is there that he cannot do? God will help us. He is the God of all comforts. I know our time is going by, but if you'll turn with me briefly to Philippians chapter 3. It's a beautiful parallel passage here. Philippians chapter 3, verse 9 to 11. I'd like to read all the way from 1 to 11 here, but we'll just look at 9 to 11. The Apostle Paul, right after a, a testimony that he considered all things lost for the sake of Christ, considering them even rubbish, says in verse 9, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, yay, and may share in his sufferings. Okay, not so much. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I go to that familiar cross-reference passage because one of the things that we need to to reorient ourselves to, not only within the world, but within the broader evangelical church, is that if we're suffering, if we're experiencing trouble, that's the normal Christian life. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial you were encountering as though something strange were happening to you. Peter writes to the churches in 1 Peter. But that begs the question, if God is such a good comforter, as I'm arguing, why do Christians have to suffer at all? Why doesn't God just remove our suffering completely? That leads us to our second point, the context of comfort, the reality of our suffering. Suffering is an undercurrent in this whole passage and in much of the New Testament, actually. What kind of suffering? Well, usually, and I think it's the strongest theme in the undercurrent in 2 Corinthians, the suffering is persecution because of testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ. I've, I've actually hesitated in preaching this passage because of my, uh, in, in my own testimony, because some of the suffering that we've experienced has not been persecution of the kind that the Paul and the apostles in the early church experienced and many Christians around the world are experiencing today. So this kind of suffering is usually persecution because of opposition to the truth and hatred of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if they hated me, they will hate you as well. So the primary application of pain and comfort in 2 Corinthians 1 is persecution. But the more I looked at suffering in the New Testament, the more I looked at the suffering in Paul, the more that I looked at suffering in 2 Corinthians, the more I saw it's not just persecution. It's quite a wide range of suffering. Various trials, as the Bible says, elsewhere. So persecution is not only the, the only place where God's comfort is applied. All kinds of trials apply. So for Paul himself, in chapter 11, we read this list of all the things that he'd been through. Some of his suffering is because of difficulty in traveling. Some of it is internal anxiety, partially because of the, the trouble the churches are facing that he's, dare I say it, worried about and praying. He's not denying Philippians 4, 6, and do not be anxious for anything. But he was troubled, and he had... had 
great grief in his heart over people that weren't saved or Christians that were fighting or unloving or or not getting the gospel. Paul also talks in chapter 12 about the thorn in his flesh, which, which we don't know exactly what that was, but it was undoubtedly a physical suffering that he was experiencing as well that led him to say, That God was teaching him, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. So any of us that suffer in any way can certainly apply the truths of the comfort that is given to us. But we haven't gotten to the question yet, why do we suffer? God ordained suffering in this life. And if you believe in a sovereign God, there's no getting away from that. God is never the author of evil, but... But he ordains that suffering be, and even suffering caused by evil. It's it's a part of his working out all things for good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. So why do we suffer? Well, it's a consequence of living in a Genesis 3 world. It's a reminder constantly that this world is fallen from its perfection of the original creation because of man's sin. We live in a cursed world. Sin and evil are present. That is the first reason why we experience suffering. Because we're not living in the new heaven and the new earth yet. We are redeemed but still living in this old and fallen world. Another thing that we need to address very briefly, this could be a series of messages, but A common objection to Christianity, and perhaps you've heard it as you've tried to share your faith with others, is the problem of evil. If God is good, why is there suffering and evil in the world? Well, the first thing you need to remember with that is that the problem of evil is not a uniquely Christian problem. Atheists and Buddhists and Muslims, they have a problem of evil too. They're living in the same fallen world. Christianity has the only good answers. So we don't have a problem of evil so much as particularly atheists, would have a problem of pleasure and a problem of good, a problem of morality. Because how do you explain those things without the God of the Bible? That's all I can spend time on on that particular point. But another reason we suffer is for his good purposes, Jesus promised that we would suffer. He promised that we would have trouble and that we would be persecuted for his sake. But he also said, by the way, we win. So that's where our faith and hope must rest to find that comfort of God in the midst of suffering. It's not too much to say that knowing God's comfort when we suffer is a gospel essential. Let me say that again because I don't think you're going to hear this very many places. It's not too much to say that knowing God's comfort when we suffer is a gospel essential. I hope you've heard that before, but I imagine some of you haven't really thought of that before. You're well taught here, so you may have heard that exact same thing before. Paul says in Romans 8, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we also may be glorified with him. There are a lot of verses like that, including 2 Corinthians chapter 1. The strength of weakness is how Christ overcame the evil one. He laid down his life. 
only to take it up again. He went as a, a lamb is to, went to death as a lamb is silent before its shearers. The power of weakness is a gospel essential, even in and ultimately in the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he calls us to follow him. You might be thinking, but I don't really suffer. Not like this. How can I know God's comfort? How can I have assurance that I'm even a Christian right now because I can't really identify with this kind of suffering? Well, first of all, let me say, don't go looking for it. It will find you. Years ago, I preached a series on the the book of Job, and I had a chilling thought in my office as I was preparing my first message. I thought, the story of Job is just our story. In fast forward, if we live long enough, we'll experience the same things. That's life in our fallen world. So don't go looking for suffering. Don't get a martyr complex. It'll come and find you in good time. So because of that, develop a good theology of suffering now. Don't suppress the truth and unrighteousness that nothing bad can touch God's children. There's a lot of teaching out there like that, but it's running contrary to Scripture. Don't wait for a crisis. Develop a good theology of suffering now before the trouble comes. Secondly, think through your definition of sufferings. I had a problem in reading sufferings almost always in the New Testament as active to the death persecution like the first century church and kind of ignored suffering in the whole spectrum. Don't do that. Think through what suffering is according to Scripture. Paul says... We might someday share abundantly in Christ's sufferings. He doesn't say that in 2 Corinthians 1 here in verse 5. He says, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. There's no if, maybe, someday about it. He just assumes that these Christians are experiencing Christ's sufferings. We may not be actively persecuted right now, but how do we respond to the big and little sufferings of life in a, in a whole spectrum of areas? First of all, do you experience some suffering in grieving over sin? Sin out there. You're watching the news, you're reading the newspaper. Do you feel like weeping sometimes and, and grieving over the evil and the, the horror that's going on in the world? That is a form of suffering. And if you couldn't care less, go back to point one here. Develop a good theology of suffering. Get engaged with the gospel. Get engaged with the Father's heart. Do you suffer in the struggle of fighting, of warring against your sin in your own heart? If you are a Christian, the answer is yes, you do. You're fighting that battle of sin in your own heart. And there's an element of suffering in there. And if we deny that we suffer, we're not going to be going to war against our remaining sin as we should be. Do we face setbacks and ridicule because we're Christians? I'm sure there are lots of testimonies of people here that have been passed over for promotions or have been ridiculed or just shouldered aside at work for a variety of reasons because you're a Christian. 
Lots of stories on that. That's a form of suffering. Do we live with tension and frustration in our families because we worship Christ as Lord and they have no interest in Christ at all? Does that cause friction? Does that cause tension and difficulty in your family? I think for virtually every family here, the answer would be, yeah. We've got difficulty with family members because we're Christians. They're not. It all applies. It's all here in this reality of suffering. We just need to open our eyes and see it because I think we've, even, even in a well-taught church like this, I think we're, we're often tainted a little bit by the prosperity gospel and some of that teaching that, that we should only have blessing and prosperity and things getting better all the time. It's just not what the Bible teaches. Again, don't look, go looking for trouble. It will find you. And when you do suffer, we still have the commandment, and for good reason, rejoice in the Lord always. And I will say it again, rejoice. So don't find this newfound doctrine of theology, or theology of suffering, if it is newfound for you, and for some of you it is, some of you it isn't, and then go about with a glum face all the time. It's not what I'm encouraging you to do. But I'm encouraging you to be biblically realistic and say, yeah, suffering, suffering is integral to the life of a Christian. And that's good because we're sharing abundantly in the sufferings of Christ that we may share abundantly in the comfort that our God gives us. It may be here that that there are people who say, "I, I still don't think I suffer. And I think for some people, that might be a mark of spiritual maturity. Paul can say light and momentary trials even though he suffered as much as anybody because his perspective was so captivated with the glories of Christ and the hope of heaven that he got to a point of almost indifference. So you might still be here, and I've met particularly senior Christians like this. Oh, everything's great, and I know everything is not great, but they've got such a joy and a hope in the Lord that the suffering just fades away. If you're like that and you say, I'm not suffering, praise God. I'm thankful for you and so is this church family. So there is that as well. But most of us have a long road to hoe before we get there. Don't waste your suffering, big or small. God will use it to teach you, deepen you, use you. And most importantly, according to this passage, God will meet you in his suffering with deep comfort. And you'll know him better than ever. And that's the best thing. Last point, and it's a much shorter point. The fellowship of comfort. Community and prayer for the glory of God. This word share here is another Greek word you know, koinonia. The word for fellowship. It's often translated share, translated fellowship or partnership. We are together. We have a, a fellowship. And fellowship doesn't just mean drinking coffee and eating donuts together. Fellowship is, is when we are committed together for a common purpose. It's like a, a couple of guys getting together to form a business. That's a fellowship. They're committed. There's risk involved. There's a, a covenant agreement involved. And they're, they're working together for a common purpose. That's what we are as the body of Christ. We're a fellowship. Committed together. Working for a common purpose. Joined together by God in Christ. So this fellowship of comfort, community and prayer for the glory of God, what is the purpose of sharing and suffering? Well, there are three purpose statements here in this, these few short verses in 2 Corinthians 1. Verse 7, 
First of all, Paul says, Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. There's a fellowship in sufferings. Weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. But we need to be together, open and vulnerable and sharing together as we suffer. But then we share together in God's comfort as, as he meets us. So that's a purpose statement for these verses. Verse 10 as well says, He delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. This is a Godward purpose statement. This is a confident hope that Paul has. That though we share in sufferings and we share in comfort in this fallen world, we will be delivered. Absolutely. Because God has said so and he will do it. This is God who raises the dead. And also in verse 11, and this is where I'm going to spend the rest of my time. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you also, oh, sorry, that's verse 7. Verse 11, you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Uh, this is a verse that we could read through quickly and just go by. Paul often has verses like this. But, but if you look at it closely, it's, it's really quite dramatic. I know different translations translate verse 11 a little differently, but I kind of like the edge that the English Standard Version that I'm using has on it here. You must help us by prayer. And not all of your translations will put it quite that way. But there is an obligation here and, and an expectation from Paul that he needs these people. He's crying out for their prayers. He's offering the comfort of God, but he's not just a remote teacher that's got it all together. He's in this desperate struggle with these Christians and he needs their prayers. He needs them to be with him in fellowship. Suffering takes our eyes off of ourselves and our own agendas. Suffering, again, has a simplifying and a purifying effect. As we suffer, our attention is turned to God. And as we are helped, our priorities are reoriented. As we're comforted by God, our eyes are turned to others who are suffering. And we want to help them, to comfort them with the comfort that God has given to us. In this, and in this probably more than anything else in the church, other than clear gospel teaching, but practically speaking, living it out, fellowshipping together in suffering, being vulnerable and open with one another and sharing together in our sufferings will bring us together and help us to meet God. As we grow together in love for God's people, we'll learn to pray for one another. If we're being fed God's word and sanctified by the Holy Spirit, we will pray for one another. But what should we pray for? For comfort? Yes, absolutely. But even more than that, in verse 11, we pray that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. There's a circle of of suffering, of fellowship, of prayer, of comfort, of thanksgiving. And people are watching us. And as we, we fellowship together with the God of comfort in our sufferings and experiencing this comfort and praying for another, God will add to our number. People will say, look at how that person suffers. Look at the joy of that family of believers who really love each other and care for one another. I want in on that. And therefore, many will continue to give thanks for what God is doing in our midst in this fellowship 
of sufferings and the fellowship of comfort that we have together. This thanksgiving that multiplies gives glory to God for his salvation and goodness in bringing comfort and affliction. Now, I've been a Christian for many years. I was a pastor for roughly 20 years full-time and then two and a half years in Calgary now. I've seen a lot of conferences. I've seen a lot of churches sitting around and going, what are some of the greatest needs of our churches? And I would say that always on the list of the greatest needs of a church are, we really need to be better at praying together. Right, Dan? Would, would, would that be, if you're analyzing, doing assessment, we need to pray better together. And what's another thing? We need to build a greater sense of community. Isn't that another thing that's always on the list? But how often in those conferences, how often in those seminars do people say, suffering, fellowship of sharing and sufferings together, that's going to bring us to pray? That's going to to cause us to grow in community and love for one another? But isn't it how God has designed things? If you carefully read the New Testament. And again, I'm not talking about just the crisis situations. God allows and ordains those things in the lives of churches and in church families um, as well. But, but I'm talking about being vulnerable and opening and confessing our sins to one another and, and sharing these, quote-unquote, smaller trials that we have. And I, I don't know you folks here, but I suspect that there's a drift often in our prayer meetings that we, we have the organ recital. We talk about Bob's heart and Millie's liver and the other different organs uh, in, our, in our prayer request. And that's great. We need to pray for the physical needs of the people in the church. But how often do we pray for one another in the suffering that we're experiencing with our children who are not walking with the Lord? Or that broken relationship we have with some siblings because we're Christians, they're not, and it's causing tension. Or how often do we, we talk about, maybe we're... we're too shy, maybe we're too proud to talk about our struggles with work because we're Christians or even suffering and struggles at at work and at home for a variety of reasons. That's the way to build a loving and praying church is to share this fellowship of sufferings and people will watch and many will give thanks to the Lord for the blessings that he gives to us when we do this. We suffer, God comforts then we are able to give comfort as we have received comfort from God. So in conclusion and application, talk to one another. Be honest and vulnerable. Ask for help. Share your sufferings in appropriate circumstances with other believers here, small groups, uh, just one-on-one, the family's over. Talk about your sufferings. Pray for one another. Have a goal of seeing many give thanks to God for the ministry of comfort that this church experiences from the God of all comfort. I left this for the very end. I debated whether I'd even do this or not, but um, some of you may know I spoke at our conference at Calvary Grace here in January, and uh, some of you were there. And I did read a few verses from 2 Corinthians, but I said I'm not today at the conference there in January. I'm not going to be preaching a sermon in this passage. I'm going to be giving a, a personal testimony. And the theme was receiving love. And it was a personal testimony of how our church family was comforted in suffering five and a half years ago. 
Uh, some of you will know, some of you won't, that five and a half years ago, our daughter on a sunny sun, uh, September afternoon, September 27th, uh, 2008, went out for a walk. Sunny was in town, town paths. She walked by some bushes and a man was waiting there and attacked and killed her. Um, this was splashed all over the news and it was all across Canada, actually, and we were the center of a lot of focus in the media and... Uh, we were overwhelmed with the comfort of God that God gave to us. So that's not persecution in that sense. This was a total stranger that attacked my daughter. Somebody that lived in town, they did find him two months afterwards, and uh, he's in, in jail now. Uh, we miss Emily terribly, but God is good and God comforts us. And, and I mentioned on my, my, my blog, I had Van mentioned our blogs back and forth then, and that blog was a real point of connection for a lot of people pre-Facebook. So that might have been different now. But um, I said on my, my blog and in some of the testimonies I was able to give that, that as I'd, I'd heard the news, I was on my bed and I couldn't pray. I couldn't do anything. I was just calling out to God, help, help, help. And, and the thought came to mind from God that if the gospel that you've been preaching all these years isn't true now, it never was. And I was able to get up and take a deep breath. And yeah, it was very difficult after that. I had experienced with things like panic attacks and just different things. And it was a, a terrible time of grief. And some of you here will have gone through deep waters of grief like that. But God used his people to comfort us in unbelievable ways. In ways that I don't have time to mention here. If you'd like to, just go to calvarygrace.ca and you can hear that message online. If you want to hear more of that testimony. But my point there was that we often talk about love in terms of what we give, and that's very important. But there's an oft-overlooked aspect that there are times, really all the time, where we need to be open and vulnerable to receive love from other people too. So let me leave you with this thought. Grow in the fellowship of sharing in Christ's sufferings and be that comfort of God for one another in your whole spectrum of sufferings as you go forward here at Wachaskwin Mission Church. Let's pray together.